0: Johnson & Johnson is proud to sponsor this episode of Stroke of Genius, which features one of the great vaccine breakthroughs in history. While today's global healthcare challenges and systems are much different than mid-20th century, the drive to alleviate human suffering and advance a healthier world for all remains as strong as ever. J&J applauds the tremendous response of doctors, nurses, first responders, academics, industry, governments, and everyday people in caring for one another during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's 1706 in Boston. Benjamin Franklin was born this year, right on Milk Street. The ports are bustling, sending out sugar, tobacco, and rum to England, receiving goods like spices and silver from the West Indies. Ships are required to quarantine at Spectacle Island, prevent any further outbreaks of the disease that has already ravaged the continent more than once, smallpox. Brought by the first English settlers to North America, smallpox raged against not only Bostonians, but also American Indians, whose immune systems had never encountered a European disease before. After quarantine, the ships were allowed into port, but this was not the only merchandise to reach Boston shores. The slave trade had been an established part of the Massachusetts economy for over 50 years already. There were new enslaved Africans brought to the Boston ports every day. In 1706, an enslaved man, whose African name has been lost to history, was renamed Onesimus. He's thought to be from modern-day Libya or Ghana. He was sold to a Bostonian minister named Cotton Mather, who's perhaps most famous for his involvement in the Salem witch trials a decade earlier. Mather was determined to find a cure for smallpox. Little did he know that Onesimus would be the one to help him and would then go on to be remembered as one of the most influential people in Boston's history. From the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation, this is Stroke of Genius. Soon after Mather enslaved Onesimus, the two men discussed smallpox. Since many slave ships carried the disease as they traversed the Atlantic, Mather asked Onesimus if he'd ever had it. Onesimus answered, yes and no. Here's a passage from Mather's journal on their conversation.
1: He answered both yes and no. And then he told me that he had undergone an operation which had given him something of a smallpox and would forever preserve him from it. It was often used among his people, and whoever had the courage to use it was forever free from the fear
0: of the contagion. Mather was incredulous. He began further research and learned that other nations had adopted this process too, places like Turkey, China, and India. It was called inoculation. Mather spread this news to every physician in Boston, hoping that at least one of them would adopt the process. But when they realized he'd gained this information from an enslaved man, they vehemently rejected the idea. Their racism meant they didn't want to be associated with any African practices. Decades passed. Onesimus bought his own freedom. And Mather continued fighting to bring inoculation to Massachusetts. In 1721, a slave ship bypassed that required quarantine on Spectacle Island, bringing a new scourge of smallpox to Boston. Hundreds died and thousands more fell ill. In the face of this crisis, a physician finally agreed to adopt inoculation. He saved dozens upon dozens of lives. Benjamin Franklin, that esteemed inventor and forefather of the United States, lost his son to smallpox, and published his regret at not having inoculated him. He urged everyone in Boston who fell ill to take part in the inoculation process. Finally, in the 1790s, a man named Edward Jenner developed a vaccine against smallpox. This was the first vaccine known to humankind, and it would not have been possible without the man renamed Onesimus. He's now remembered as one of the most important Bostonians of all time. Fast forward a few centuries, and a lot has changed. There are now countless vaccines in the world. The smallpox vaccine wasn't patentable because, well, the short answer is because it was a naturally occurring process. Edward Jenner didn't invent anything. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But these days, vaccines are pretty much always patented. However, there is one very famous exception from the 1950s.
2: Who owns the patent on this vaccine? Well, the people, I, I would say. There is no patent. This is. Could you patent the sun? <laughs> you mean when you asked the question about how to defeat polio, the answer was already there? Mm-hmm. In a way, if you think of David and Michelangelo, it was in the stone, but it had to be unveiled and revealed. You don't invent the answer, you reveal the answer.
0: Just like smallpox centuries earlier, polio ravaged North America. It became the whole of America's mission to find a cure as quickly as possible, before the disease claimed any more lives. The story is a unique one. We found two experts to tell it to us.
3: My name is Brian Palmer, and I'm a science journalist.
4: I'm Jane Smith, Jane S. Smith, for those of the legions who also have that name. And I'm a writer. I write about the intersection of science and
0: society. Jane has a special connection to the polio story. She's been involved for quite some time. But let's start with polio itself.
3: Polio. Is an infection, is a virus uh, that infected many, many, many thousands of people.
4: Especially in the 1950s, the number of cases was ballooning every year. When people would read that 50,000 children had been struck with this mysterious disease that could lead to paralysis or death, that was terrifying. That was appalling. That required action. Franklin Roosevelt as an adult, unusually was paralyzed by polio.
0: This was 10 years before he was elected president, but FDR was already becoming a powerful and passionate politician. He had
4: a great genius for finding people who could take on great problems.
0: So when he was elected president, FDR founded a program specifically with the goal of defeating polio. It was called the March of Dimes. The March of Dimes
4: is an absolutely fascinating organization.
3: March of Dimes, raised money in tiny, tiny increments from 80 million people.
4: It started out as the idea that you should send a dime to the White House. You will receive one of these folders from your local March of Dimes headquarters. Please fill it generously and send it on its way to wipe out polio in our time. And people all over the country and especially little children were inspired to raise money for polio research and send a dime in an envelope to the White House Now here is your
0: chance to help get this test done as quickly as possible Give every dime and dollar that you can spare The campaign stretched across the country even Walt Disney characters chimed in
4: The mailroom was going out of its mind. There was no space to deal with all these
0: dimes. Experts estimate that the March of Dimes raised about $68 million. Today, that's around $628 million. They realized they needed a face to the campaign. Someone the public could rally behind to keep alive the hope for a cure. They settled on a man in Pittsburgh. His name was Jonas Salk.
3: Jonas Salk was a virologist, uh, kind of like the Tony Fauci of his day.
4: He was working on virus research uh, at the University of Pittsburgh, but under contract with the March of Dimes.
0: Jane wrote an entire book on Jonas Salk and his polio work.
4: I was, I was sitting once in the Special Collections Library at the University of San Diego, where Jonas Salk had just donated many of his papers. And I had literally piled up file boxes upon file boxes on carts around me. And as I was there, there was an earthquake. And my first thought was, I am about to be buried under my work. Because there were all these, I said, this is, this is,
0: my worst fears are coming true. She interviewed Salk himself for the project.
4: It was quite wonderful. And I spent many hours with him, which I really appreciate. He was obviously somewhat wary. This is a man who had been interviewed many, many times and had suffered the downside of celebrity.
0: But at the height of polio research, with the whole country behind him he was very much still in the limelight. He'd received all the funding he needed to begin medical trials in earnest. With the support of nearly every American out there, he buckled down and got to work. Soon enough, Salk and his team moved from the lab into real human trials. And this is really when Jane first got involved.
4: When I was five years old, I was a polio pioneer myself. I'm dating myself here. But I took part in the SOC vaccine field trial when I was in first grade. But what was really interesting about the SOC vaccine field trial was first of all, it was at that point, and maybe still the largest field trial ever held, millions of people were involved. Second, those people were little children. So it involved the cooperation of their parents, their teachers, their doctors, their everyone else's, uh, as well as the children.
0: In Manhattan, Jane and her fellow first graders filed into the school auditorium where they received their shots. It was a double blind trial, which means both the doctors and the students had no idea whether they were actually getting the vaccine or not. Jane remembers the press, the journalists, and the TV cameras clamoring outside her elementary school. It was a big deal. Over the next few months, Salk's team monitored Jane, her classmates, and all the other vaccine trial subjects across the country. It was a daunting challenge, finding the cure to a disease that had already claimed thousands of lives. But these scientists stepped up. And in terms of innovation, it turns out that having your back against a wall like that is actually a good thing.
2: In
1: a crisis, you look at something and you realize what I'm doing today is not good enough.
0: This is Chuck Swoboda, who's something of an innovation expert. He spent 25 years as CEO of a company that went from startup to global enterprise.
1: Uh, while I was CEO, we were issued over 5,000 US patents and had probably an equal number in the pipeline. I, I personally was fortunate enough to be a co inventor on 25 of them.
0: During his time as CEO, Chuck noticed a pattern. The best work from his team came in response to adversity.
1: You know, most people aren't wired to take risk. In that moment of a crisis, you have to throw that out the window. It actually creates this momentum to go do things that otherwise you would never try to do. It's, it's really about changing people's mindset from one of protecting what they have to Stretching themselves to do something they don't know is possible, but they believe it's worth doing.
0: What's important to remember is that the healthcare industry essentially always has its back against the wall. The medical teams searching for new cures and new treatments are always facing this adversity Chuck's talking about. And that constant moment of crisis can be really difficult to live in, which is why there's such a need for strong IP to lean on. Today, The biggest crisis at hand is the coronavirus. But let's get back to the 50s. In 1955, Salk made an announcement to the nation.
2: It's a day of triumph for 40 year old Dr. Jonas E. Salk, developer of the vaccine. Here, scientists usher in a new medical age with the monumental reports that prove the Salk vaccine against crippling polio to be a sensational success. It's a day of triumph. The March of Dimes,
0: Jonas Jonas Salk, Salk, his team, They'd done it. They'd found a cure for polio with a 90% effective rate.
3: Salk was a kind of a god to people.
0: But Salk was a relatively modest man. And he was adamant that everyone remembered how this vaccine was made possible through the dimes upon dimes upon dimes that millions of Americans contributed. The vaccine didn't belong to him. And he made that very, very clear, especially in one particular interview.
3: Right, so on the day the vaccine was announced as safe and 90% effective, the famous journalist Edward R. Murrow had Salk uh, for an interview.
4: And Murrow asked him, well, who owns this vaccine? Who owns the patent
2: on this vaccine? And Salk paused and said, well... "Well, The people, I I would say, there is no patent. This is... could Could you patent the sun? Could you patent the sun?
4: Could you patent the
0: sun? Could you patent the sun? This rhetorical question that Salk poses unleashed decades of debate over who ought to own vaccine patents, or whether there ought to be vaccine patents at all. Could you patent the sun? (laughs) To get to the heart of this debate, Brian says it's important to break Salk's question into its two distinct parts. The first is...
2: Well, the people, I I would say, there is no patent.
0: The people who
4: would donated all those dimes and put in all that time and effort to make it possible.
3: Because the March of Dimes had collected so much money from so many people on a voluntary basis.
0: That part's pretty straightforward. The next part of Salk's answer is more complicated.
3: Could you patent the sun? (laughs) What he's saying is, if something just exists in nature, should you be able to exclude other people from accessing it or using it?
0: Here, though, lies the problem. Brian calls this question an intuition pump.
3: An intuition pump is a shortcut to a hard question. It's, uh, it's a way of answering a hard question that draws on things that seem intuitively obvious and certainly true, but they, they avoid kind of confronting the difficult parts of the question.
0: So there's a lot more at play here than Salk's seemingly simple question. At the end of the day, you can't compare a vaccine to the sun. Because, well...
3: A vaccine is usually not like the sun. You don't just stumble upon a vaccine. They require years of of work, uh, the expertise of many, many, many well-educated scientists, and a lot of trial and error.
0: Remember the first smallpox vaccine and how it wasn't patentable?
3: Um, when Edward Jenner extracted pus from uh, one person who was exposed to smallpox, in the 18th century and injected that pus into another person, that was really just taking something that already existed and putting it somewhere else.
0: So sure, you could argue that trying to patent the original smallpox vaccine would be like trying to patent the sun. But these days, vaccines are a little more complex. Actually, they're way more complex.
1: You know, when you're living on the edge of a new idea, you're risking incredible amounts of human and financial capital to do that with honestly very poor odds of being successful. Without the benefit of being able to protect your knowledge, you would never do it, it's too hard.
3: The other problem with that comparison is that um, patentability really kind of has nothing to do with whether something exists or doesn't exist, or at least it it shouldn't, and that's not how our original um, patent structure was created. The issue is, what is the best way to create an incentive to push science forward? And to make science useful for people and the right way to think about patent lies, what's the best way to get people to create useful science?
0: What's even more interesting, though, is that before this interview, the March of Dimes had already looked into patenting the vaccine.
3: The reason that his lawyers were looking into patenting the vaccine was that they wanted to make sure that the, that the vaccine could only be manufactured by um, companies that could could produce Quality versions of the vaccine, because um, as we now know, we now know painfully well, there are a lot of people who question the safety and the efficacy of vaccines, and and it's important for the public to accept that vaccine is safe. and And if there was a company out there making kind of uh, bootlegged versions of the vaccine that were unsafe or ineffective, it would undermine public trust in the vaccine.
0: Both Jane and Brian aren't convinced that Salk was presenting some type of fake front to the public. He just wasn't really involved with the patenting side of things. So his rhetorical question about patenting the sun, maybe that's how he saw the issue. But this intuition pump doesn't get to the heart of the issue, which is how IP protects vaccines today. And we're getting to that.
2: Uh, My life changed very abruptly at that time. You became a public figure. Yes, uh, I... uh... As Ed Morrow said that evening, I'll always remember it, a uh, uh, young man, a great tragedy has just befallen you. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, you've lost your anonymity.
4: After the polio vaccine came out, Sauk, uh, had to confront a new life of enormous celebrity, global fame, global reverence and inevitably a kind of backlash from his scientific colleagues
2: and it was a handicap uh well more than that uh, there have been many other aspects to that so-called success
4: scornful jealous doubtful etc etc etc
2: to be looked upon by certain uh, of your scientific colleagues as if you uh, perpetrated uh, the crime of having become a hero, and so you've never been fully accepted by your own colleagues as you have by the public for what he has done. There's a achieved. marked discrepancy mm-hmm. between these two populations, you
4: might mm-hmm.
0: say. After a few decades of living in the public eye and facing plenty of backlash, Salk put his mind to another crisis.
4: One of the projects that he worked on. Uh, towards the end of his life was working on a HIV-AIDS vaccine.
3: He did develop, um, he developed a a potential vaccine that went into testing. Uh, It eventually failed as all HIV vaccines have so far. However, um, he did attempt to patent it uh, before it failed when it looked like it could potentially work. It was a different situation from the polio vaccine, so I don't think this suggests that Salk is somehow a hypocrite. So he had every right to, to seek out his patent.
0: In May of 1995, Salk gave one final interview.
2: How can we relate to each other in a more positive, healthy, wholesome way? Because we are the ancestors of the future. And what is it that we're going to leave for those come.
0: He died one month later.
2: Dr. Zalki, you're a man who has already had an immense influence on the future. Thank you very much for the time that you spent with us.
0: And Jane? That day in her elementary school auditorium, she didn't end up receiving the polio vaccine.
4: I got the placebo, so I had to go through the whole thing all over again. And because nobody quite knew how long the vaccine lasted, my pediatrician, my doctor, kept on giving me polio vaccine
0: for years. (laughs) So I am super hyper-vaccinated. Like I said, the story of the polio vaccine is an exceptional one. Because today, vaccine patents are not just commonplace. They're crucial. Unfortunately, it's no longer feasible for the public to fund a national medical trial. We're talking about billions and billions of dollars to help the billions of people on the planet. IP opens the doors for doctors and scientists to have the money, and more importantly, the time, to pursue the greatest medical issues facing all of us today. And time is a very, very powerful thing. Good morning, Becky. This is the news that we've been waiting to hear. Pfizer and BioNTech reporting the first results from their phase three vaccine trial. Another historic day the second vaccine to show such high efficacy for getting us through this pandemic. Johnson & Johnson has said it has filed uh, its application with the FDA for emergency use of its COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, it It took Jonas Salk nearly a decade for his breakthrough on the polio vaccine. Compare that to the COVID vaccines, which were developed in less than a year.
1: All steps that can be have been carried out simultaneously. The result has been the fastest vaccine development we've ever seen all without cutting back on testing and safety.
0: That was thanks to decades of patented work scientists were able to draw from. The patent system, with its focus on safety and efficacy, is at the heart of the COVID-19 vaccine success. Whether we can patent the sun or not, fighting the coronavirus pandemic wouldn't have been possible without strong IP.
3: The question with all, with all patent law, and probably most acutely with the vaccine patentability, is, is, how is, to, is how do you balance the need to uh, create new things, to create an incentive to create new things against the need to take whatever is created and kind of run forward with it and make it useful.
2: You mean when you asked the question about how to defeat polio, the answer was already there? Mm-hmm. In a way, if you think of David and Michelangelo, it was in the stone but it had to be unveiled and revealed.
0: And if that's the case, if scientists are carving at blocks of marble, then you could think of the patent system as the chisel. Given the advancement in innovation and vaccines since its original release in June 2020, IPO Education Foundation will rebroadcast last season's Illuminating Patents and Pandemic episode, focusing on COVID-19. Re-listen and compare how far COVID-19 vaccine development has come in such a short time thanks to the IP system. Subscribe and look out for the re-release of Patents and Pandemic in your Apple Podcast queue this Friday. Johnson & Johnson is proud to sponsor this episode of Stroke of Genius, which features one of the great vaccine breakthroughs in history. While today's global healthcare challenges and systems are much different than mid-20th century, the drive to alleviate human suffering and advance a healthier world for all remains as strong as ever. J&J applauds the tremendous response of doctors, nurses, first responders, academics, industry, governments, and everyday people in caring for one another during the COVID-19 pandemic.